In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There, our Genesis foundation sprang from the will and word of the great I Am. Woven deep into these foundations are rich truths of God and man, sin and righteousness, life and death, and everything else of ultimate consequence. What God started in Genesis is now settled and completed in Christ Jesus. a seminary professor that uh, I really enjoyed, and, and I don't remember, I should, probably shouldn't say this out loud, I don't remember a whole lot about seminary, <laughs> but I do remember this one professor, Dr. Stephen Hatfield, and he taught, uh, and I only took one class from him, he taught uh, New Testament survey, and I'll never forget, the, and I was pretty, it was pretty early in, in my seminary career, and we would go into the class, and as we got started, he would, he made this statement, he goes, today, we're gonna be studying my favorite passage of scripture in the word of God. And I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. Right off the bat, we're studying his favorite passage. Well, the next time we met for class, he began the class and he said the exact same thing. <laughs> Today, we're gonna to be studying my favorite passage. And it was a different passage, by the way. And this happened multiple times. And finally, after several weeks, he said, okay, you probably have noticed how I always say we're studying my favorite passage. Well, here's the deal. Whatever I'm studying, that's my favorite passage in that moment. And he had such an enthusiasm for the word of God. It was contagious. And I thought, I want to be like that. I want whatever I'm studying, I want that to be my favorite passage in the moment. And so this past week, Genesis chapter six has been my favorite passage in the Bible. Now, next week, it'll probably be something different. But that should be the draw and the love that we have for the word of God, that whatever we're looking at and studying our heart, our desire, our passion is there. Now, we began um, a section here in Genesis 6, 6, 7, 8, 9, where we're gonna be looking at, uh, at the life of Noah. And let me say this as kind of some introductory uh, truths, remarks. First of all, Genesis is a historical narrative. It's historical narrative. Second, Noah was a real person. He existed in time and space. And third, the flood that's described in the coming chapters we're gonna look at was a real catastrophic universal flood. And if you struggle with those facts, if you struggle with those being truths that did God really do that? Was Noah a real, a real person? Then you have to take up some issue with Jesus because in Jesus, Matthew 24, and Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 and 39, if you wanna just jot that down, we're not gonna look at it. Jesus makes reference back to Noah and the flood, and he compares his own coming in judgment one day to be like the judgment in Noah's day. And so why would Jesus say that if it was not historical narrative, if Noah wasn't a real person, if the flood wasn't an actual catastrophic event that flooded the entire world? In fact, what we're gonna look at today, uh, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, really that whole section we're looking at is a preview the flood, the destruction, all that we'll look at is a preview of what will come in the future when Jesus returns. The story of scripture throughout, and we see it beginning to develop in chapter six today, is a story of a holy God who judges sinful man. But as he judges sinful man for their sin, he also provides a way of escape. 
He also provides a way of salvation. We see that in our chapter today. We're going to see that throughout the Old Testament. Everywhere you look, you see that God's judgment and God's mercy, God's wrath and God's grace over and over. And notice as we go through where you see that today. I've divided the passage into two sections this morning. We're going to look at the condition of man and the call of Moses. The first seven verses, we're going to get a a good picture of what pre-flood world looked like. And by the way, it wasn't a pretty picture at all. But that's the way we're going to look at it. The corruption of man and the call of Noah. So hopefully you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 6 so we can read together and take a look at this. We're going to start with the corruption beginning in the first four verses. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So as we start our study this morning, we are facing in these first four verses what I believe is the most debated text in the book of Genesis, and one of the most debated texts in the entire Bible. And that's what we get to start with today. Woohoo! So let's do this. The question we ask, because we see Moses telling us that there's this intermarrying going on here. And so we have to ask, okay, who were the sons of God? Who were the daughters of man? And I don't have time to go into, you know, every single potential interpretation. So I'm going to give you two major interpretations. The first is that these sons of man were from the line of the godly line of Seth. We looked at that last week. Pastor Russell, we went through the genealogy of the godly line of Seth in chapter five. And those would say that that was who was intermarrying with these daughters of man would be the ungodly line of Cain, which we saw back in chapter four, thus creating this ungodly mixture, degeneration, corruption in marriage, and ultimately in the world. Others would say a second interpretation would be that those sons of man are actually fallen angels that have come and they have possessed human beings, men, and then therefore those men are now intermarrying with these women, the daughters of man, creating this ungodly line of giants, the Nephilim. Now, there are variations on those two. There's even a third one that would say the sons of God are tyrants, uh, ungodly tyrants. But uh, those first two are two of the most common ones you'll see. Now, I spent a whole lot of time reading. I spent a whole lot of time studying, way too much, actually, to be honest with you. And I have my own opinions. I'll be glad to share those with you. But I don't have time to expound on that in here, nor do I have time to even do that on a Beyond the Notes episode. But here's the good news. Regardless of your interpretation of that, the result is the same. The condition of the world was perverse, evil, and wicked. And we're going to see that in just a minute as we look in verse 5, 6, and 7. But it had gotten to a point where God was about to intervene. And so regardless of which interpretation, again, we can kind of don't have to worry about figuring it out in the moment. We can see that the idea is things are looking very, very bad. The point here is humanity's sin has led to their corruption. Humanity's sin leads to corruption. It started in Genesis 3, and we continue to see that weave through Scripture, that it will sin will bring corruption. And we see that in our own culture, right? I mean, it, we, it doesn't take much looking around to see 
the effects of sin that have corrupted our own culture. And we kind of wonder, well, you know, is it as bad as it was in Noah's day? I don't know. But we can definitely see the effects of sin that lead to corruption. But what are the consequences? That's what we see in letter B, the consequences, verses five, six, and seven. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So now we get to the consequences. And I hope you see the progression here that we see the Lord saw, the Lord grieved, and the Lord said. Five, six, and seven, the Lord saw, the Lord grieved, and the Lord said. That verse five, we see the Lord, what he saw. And it was a snapshot summary of what he saw as he looked down on creation. And I can't think of a more emphatic statement about the wickedness of the human heart than what we see here in verse five, when it says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. And every intention of his thoughts was only evil continually. We might not be sure of the interpretation of verses one through four, but the result in verse five, it was a bad place. Every imaginable evil, violence, perversion, pride, just all running rampant in creation. And then we see God's pain because of that. In verse six, the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now we hear that, the Lord regretted. And in verse seven, at the end of verse seven, it says the Lord was sorry that he made man. And we were like, well, wait a minute. Did, did God make a mistake here? Was this, a, was this a, was it an oops? Like, uh, I should never have done this. I, I made a mistake when I created him. No, absolutely not. In fact, we need to understand what's going on here. Here we have what's known as an anthropopathism. Now that's a big word. I'm gonna put it on the screen. Anthropopathism. Some of you already know what that is. And that's when we attribute our human emotions and passions to deity, to God. We also do that through anthropomorphic sayings as well, where we attribute physical beings of humans to a divine God. But here we're doing it with the emotions. And you'll notice probably any time we do that, I always wanted to get a nice 15-letter word in my, uh, in my message. There we go. Anytime we do that, when we try to attribute human feelings or passions to God, God is not human, is he? So there's a tension right away. We're trying to do something. But that's all we have to describe God. But yet it falls short. So when we say, I regretted something, it means very different than how God would regret or how God would feel. And God does have feelings. God's not a block of wood or a robot. He has feelings, but they're different from ours. We, and again, we can't even understand that. But here we try our best. But we need to understand that God's response of grief over the making of humanity is not a response in a sense of sorrow over a mistaken creation. Like I would, if I wake up in the middle of the night with a bad stomach ache and I regret eating all that pizza and ice cream right before I went to bed. That's not the kind of regret that we're talking about here. God is regretting, remorsing, and grieving over the perversion of sin that man had on display at this particular point in history. And so from that, we get to God's plan. We get to God's plan, verse seven. And God's plan was to bring judgment. The consequences of their sin, the consequences of their constant evil of their heart, evil of their actions, God was going to bring judgment. And so the consequence of sin and that corruption is always God's judgment. 
So what does God's plan of judgment involve here? Well, we read in verse seven that it is the total devastation of both man and animal from the face of the earth. So now we get to the call of Noah. The call of Noah. That's the picture of what's happening. We have this evil, wicked, perverse, perverseness that's just everywhere on the earth. And now we come into this call of Noah, beginning in verse eight. And I've entitled this first part of verse, uh, this section, the call of Noah, God's grace and Noah's righteousness. God's grace and Noah's righteousness. Let's read these, uh, these three verses. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. First thing we notice in this verse, uh, this passage, part of our passage, is verse eight is really a transitional verse, moving from the condition to the call of Noah. And verse eight is a beautiful verse. I, I put it on, if you have an outline, you see number one, it was all grace. It was all grace. We read this verse, but Noah found favor or grace because that word is the same word in the Hebrew, favor, favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the first thing that scripture tells us about Noah. Now, was Noah a sinner? Absolutely, he was a sinner, just like the rest of humanity. And let it be clear, he did not find favor and grace in God's eyes because he was righteous. No. <laughs> Left to himself, Noah would be, would be floating with the rest of humanity and would have perished in God's judgment. But he found grace, God's grace. He Did he deserve it? No. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But God's grace came first. By the way, speaking of first, this is the first time we see that word grace in our scriptures. The very first time. And I think how appropriate to bring grace in with the backdrop of this just terribleness that's going on all around. The evil, the wickedness, the sin, the perversion, the violence. And here comes the grace of God. Almost to say, it's, it's always going to be about my grace in choosing you. You have nothing to bring to this story. Verse eight connects the corruption of man that we just look like, looked at and the work of God's grace in the line of Adam through Noah. And what else do we learn about Noah here? We learn several things in this, these verses I just read. Probably the, the least important thing we learn is that he had three sons. Now, somewhat important because the project that God's about to give him, three sons are gonna come in handy, right? Got a lot of work to do and three boys are gonna come in handy. But compared to the other two things, it's not quite as important. We also see that Noah walked with God. We're gonna come back to that in just a minute. But what I believe is the most important part, really of our entire chapter here, in verse nine, we see that Noah was a righteous man. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Now, we've already clarified that Noah had experienced God's favor, his grace, but now we're gonna look at Noah's faith. Remember, we are saved by grace alone, through what? Faith alone. That's how we're saved. And it's no different in Noah's day as well. So you say, well, where's it mentioned Noah's faith here? Because I don't see anything about Noah's faith in verse nine. And you would be right. That would be a good observation. But we're gonna jump over to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 11. And the writer of Hebrews helps us to see how Noah's faith integrates with his righteousness. Hebrews eleven seven says this, 
By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So Noah hears what God is gonna call him to do. And by faith, he is believing God and obeying God. But continues on. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by what? By faith. The righteousness that comes by faith. You see, Noah's righteousness does not come because he was a good person. We like to think that, don't we? Oh, here's the story of Noah and the ark and all this bad stuff happening. And here's good little Noah over here. God's going to use him to save uh, himself and his family. No, Noah was not a good person. Noah might have been better than the people around him. But that's not what made him righteous either. He could have probably looked around and said, yeah, I could. Yeah, 99% of these people are worse than I am. I must be a righteous person. No, that is also not where he got his righteousness from. Or maybe he, because he came from the line of Seth, he had a, a godly father, Lamech, and also uh, Methuselah. Maybe he was counting on them to, for his righteousness. Nope, that's not where he got his righteousness either. Noah believed God when nobody else believed God. And God counted his faith as sufficient and covered him with his righteousness. Noah believed. God, he found favor, grace in God's eyes first. And God really gave him the faith to believe, but he, by faith, he believed God in that moment, trusting what God was telling him was true, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Got another first here. If you're taking notes, not only do we have grace and favor mentioned for the first time in scripture, but we also have righteousness mentioned for the first time in scripture. And what a great place to put it right here to make sure that we would understand that righteousness comes by faith. In fact, we actually see here the biblical doctrine of imputed righteousness. This doctrine that God imputes his righteousness on his children. That it's nothing we do, but it's by the sacrifice of Christ as God imputed our sins on him that we now have the imputed righteousness of Christ on us. And this is the exact same thing that's happening here with Noah. We see this develop in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 15, verse six, just a few chapters later, we see this with Abraham and it says, and he believed the Lord. Talking about Abraham, believed the Lord and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. Again, that imputed righteousness. The New Testament develops this, this doctrine much more fully. But I'll give you just one example. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we read, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, it was by faith that Noah trusted God's words and as we read in Hebrews and in reverent fear, Noah started to build the ark. Now, there's one other thing we want to see, and I told you we're going to spend a little more time in this section. The third thing is walking with God. The last part of verse nine, it says that Noah walked with God. We learned about Enoch who walked with God last week. We also learned that this is something that every Christian can do with astonishing results, but it's not something that we do automatically. And I believe that this walking with God was Noah's sanctification. We see he was, he was, he was saved through God's grace, through faith, but now we see his sanctification process of, of becoming more and more like God. 
And this is true for us. For those of us in Christ, we have been justified. We have been justified by the the sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And now we're in this sanctification process that will end one day in glorification. It's between the already and not yet. We have been saved. We are in Christ but we were yet still waiting our glorification. And that's that sanctification of walking with God. And as I was reading this and thinking about how Noah lived so faithfully, we read at the end of the chapter, he did everything that God commanded him. How did he do that? I believe he did that because of this simple phrase, he walked with God. And for some reason, this past week, one morning, as I was reading and meditating on this passage, God just began to bring a lot of conviction to my own heart. And here's the question that that kind of resounded in my own heart. And I'm going to ask you the same question in a moment. But the question that, that, that that I heard was, would the people that know me the best say, I walk with God? Would the people that are around me the most, would they say, just like they said about Noah, he walks with God? And now ask that question yourself. Do the people that know you the best, would they say you walk with God? And so what does that even look like, right? I mean, I'm not being called to build an ark, so that's what it played out for Noah. He he was faithful and he built an ark, right? Well, how does that play out for me? We have a church purpose statement that that we introduced this past fall. And part of that church purpose statement, after we defined that by God's grace that, uh, that we would desire to glorify God by magnifying his word to develop disciples, who? And we came up with those four measures up on the screen. And I had this conversation with Pastor Russell this past week, and we were talking about what it looks like to walk with God. And in fact, he mentioned, he goes, well, we kind of already have something in in our church purpose statement. It's not comprehensive, but it can help guide all of us to what it looks like to walking with God, right? A person that walks with God is someone that thinks biblically. They are rooted and grounded in God's word. So when decisions are made in dealing with people, relationships, or even seeing what's going on in in, in current events, we're using this filter of God's word, not our own self and our own desires, but we're looking at things through God's word. It's guiding us in how we think, how we talk, how we, how we act, everything, because we're thinking biblically. Another one is to live missionally, that we are called to live missionally. And that means that, that I am an ambassador for God, that I am to take the, I'm to be salt and light in a very dark world. And I think about Noah, he was living missionally, wasn't he? Talk about a dark world and being the only one that was seemed to be living for God in his day. He was living missionally. Are you living missionally? Are you, and I'm not gonna take time to go through the other ones, are you giving generously? Are you loving sacrificially? These are things that that would be evidence of a a walk with God and a desire to say, yes, I want to grow in my understanding of of who God is and I wanna follow him closely in his steps, walking with God. Letter B, we see now God's judgment and his rescue. God's judgment and his rescue and his rescue. Remember I said, we see this throughout, throughout scripture, God's judgment and his mercy, God's wrath and his grace, God's punishment and then a way of escape. And this is what we see in this part of our, our study. We see both the pronouncement of judgment as well as a plan to rescue sinners. Beginning in verse 11 through 13. And now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. 
Once again, we see the picture of just how bad all the earth, all flesh had been corrupted. But in verse 13, we see God speaking directly to Noah. And notice as he reveals what his judgment will be, how precise his language is. When he says, this judgment is an end to all flesh. This would be the utter destruction of the earth. Not just a local flood or a regional flood. No, this would be a global flood, all flesh, all mankind. This week on Beyond the Notes, I'm gonna take some time to talk about other evidence outside of the Bible that support this type of catastrophic flood. We're gonna look at some science uh, as well, and I promise you there'll be no math. I know for the last two weeks, there's been a lot of math involved in Beyond the Notes, so there'll be no math. Uh, At least I don't think we'll get into any math, but we will have some science uh, involved in that. But back to this, back to what was happening here. Let the weight of what he's just told Noah settle in. Let it sink in a little bit because a lot of times when we think of Noah and the ark, we think, oh, wouldn't that just be a lovely thing to decorate the baby's room? And we think about the stories that we tell our children about Noah's ark. But in reality, we're talking about God's judgment being poured out, his wrath, this watery wrath being poured out on what might have been one billion plus people all coming to judgment and death because of that. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a theme I want on my baby's wall. But yet that's the reality of what we're looking at here in God's judgment. God's judgment, but we also see God's mercy. There is a plan to rescue sinners. Beginning in verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with a lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, there it is again, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So here we see God again's pronouncement of judgment, but we also see the rescue plan. So God gives Noah these plans to build this gigantic wooden boat. And by the way, it's big. If you don't know what a cubit is, it's 18 inches, about a foot and a half, roughly, give or take an inch or two. So we're looking at a boat that would be 450 feet long. And it would be shaped like a chest, an ark. The word ark means chest. So it would be more like a barge. 450 feet long, a football field and a half, 75 feet wide and 45 feet tall, about four stories tall, with three decks. Now, there's been a lot of discussion also about the ark and, and how it was made and could he have done it. And all. This would have been, a, a, in, in Noah's day, a huge, huge ship. Up until just a few hundred years ago, this still would have been a huge ship, right? Today, it's not so much. But in Noah's day especially, it would just have been incredible. And so there's been a lot of discussion about this, this ship. I want to simply say this, that its size that is described here in Genesis 6 would have been sufficient to contain and maintain all the animals, two of each, male and female, two of each kind that God would have brought into the ark. There would have been plenty of room, plenty of room to do just that. In fact, I think maybe we'll have a little conversation as well about this and beyond the notes if you're curious as well. But back to Noah's building project. Um, we're told again at verse, in, in verse 22 that Noah did all that God commanded him to do. And so I, I begin to think about what he was called to do as he laid out that 450-foot keel. And people been, begin to say, 
Noah, what in the world are you doing? You're tearing down all our trees. You're hauling in trees. You're doing all this stuff. What in the world are you doing? I'm building a boat. Why are you building a boat? There's nothing to put a boat in. There's no water around here. What in the world are you doing? And so you can imagine, for 75 to 100 years, the abuse that he took, the ridicule that he took, can you imagine how many Noah jokes there must have been in his day? Oh, there must, I bet there were some good ones. Uh, because here's this guy that looks like he's lost his mind, right? Why is he doing this? He's doing this because God has called him to do it. He's been transformed by God. Remember, God found grace, favor with Noah in his eyes. And then Noah believed by faith. By faith, he believed what God was telling him. And so God had credited to him as righteousness. And so he was doing what he knew he needed to do. But I also think that Noah did more than just build an ark. We read in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, says this, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. A herald of righteousness. So Noah is building this ark. He's building this huge ship. But in addition to that, in his spare time, he's preaching. He's a herald of righteousness. He's preaching a message of God's righteousness, which I'm sure included, you need to repent and turn in faith to God. Let me tell you what God's told me. Let's, this is what you need to do also. Now, I'm sure this was like throwing fuel on the fire. <laughs> it's like, Noah, you're already crazy, and now you're sounding even crazier. Talking about a God and his righteousness and all this stuff. What in the world? But yet Noah, day in, day out, was faithful to work, to build, to teach, to preach the righteousness of God. He was faithful. As we'll see in the next few chapters of our study of Genesis, that Noah and the ark he is to build will foreshadow the saving work of Jesus Christ. I believe that in this picture of Noah and the ark, he's reminding us that our rescue, our salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Just as there was no other way to escape God's judgment in Noah's day except through the ark, there is no way to escape the coming judgment of God one day, except through the cross of Jesus Christ. In Noah's day, the, the, the rescue plan was an ark. Today, for you, for me, that rescue plan involves the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's continue on. Let her see God's promise and Noah's obedience. Verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animal, animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Once again, God tells Noah that he's going to provide a way of salvation through this covenant that he's establishing. And we'll hear more about that covenant in the weeks to come. And then God gives Noah just a few more details on what he needs to do as far as the collection of the animals and how to provide for them and maintain them while they're on the ark. But we get to verse 22. And I just really want us to just spend a few moments here in this, what I think is one of the most powerful statements in this passage, because it says this, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now take that phrase, he did all, 
It's a, it's a truncation of 75 plus years of building this ginormous ark. And all God's word says, he did it all. He did it all. If I'm no, I want a little more. Hey, tell them how hard I worked. Tell them all the stuff I did. No, he did all. He did everything that God commanded him to do. He didn't back down. He was faithful. Was, was, was Noah perfect? Absolutely not. But he can be an example to you and to me of what it means to live faithfully and walk with God today because he was faithful. He was obedient to God. And I, 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 I just said, well, how could, how could Noah do that? I'm thinking if it's me, you know, a few years into this, you know, I don't have the the, the gift of tenacity. Uh, I'm going to like, all right, well, maybe someone else can come along and finish this up. I'm, I'm getting tired, right? Uh, I'll move on to something else. So how did Noah do it? How was he able to stay obedient and faithful? I believe it was because it goes back to his faith. By faith. That's what Hebrews 11 said. By faith, he heard what God told him to do. And by faith, he did it. He built, in reverent fear, built an ark. Because God had transformed his life. And when God transforms you, when you are saved and transformed by God, a new creature, you're going to live life differently. And your desire is you want to be faithful. You want to walk with God. And for those of you here this morning in Christ, that should be your desire to want to live faithful to him. I started thinking, what would happen if we had something similar happen to us today? What, happened, what would happen if God showed up to me and said, Mark, I'm about ready to destroy mankind as you know it, and I need you to build a large ship to save yourself, your family, and, and anybody else. Now, if I truly believe that that is God, now I know that contradicts what he said in Genesis that he's not going to flood the world again, but let's just say for argument's sake, that's what happened. And I get that word, and I truly believe that that is God telling me that. I'm going to be like in the car down to Lowe's placing the biggest lumber order in the history of the world, right? I got to get working. I got to do something. And while in reality, that's not what's going to happen, right? Because we know God's not going to flood the world again. Essentially, that's what he's told us to do, though. That's what he's told us, that God is going to judge everyone, right? Do we not believe that, that God is going to judge everyone just like in Noah's day? And the only way of escape of divine judgment is not an ark any longer. It's through Jesus. It's through Jesus. He's the only way that anybody is saved from God's divine judgment. And if we truly believe that, we will live lives of faithfulness, walking with God, being the light and the salt to, the, to a lost and dying world. We will understand that compulsion to want to go, but I don't think we understand sometimes because I don't think we've truly been transformed. But when we are transformed, we should want to be that salt and that light to a lost and dying world.